namo tassa bhagavato harahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato harahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato harahato samma sambuddhassa homage to the buddha the blessed noble and fully self-enlightened one. Yes, listening to uh, to the Dharma, you know, it's um, how can we say it's? Um, I mean, how would you behave in front of the Queen? Now, don't answer that. <laughs> so this is so. Generally speaking, one has to adopt a uh, a proper posture. So if the, if you want to actually arrest from your sitting, bring a chair in. Not a problem, you know. <coughs> Uh, I just thought tonight to um, really just range around uh, the Buddha's teachings, just framing it around the Four Noble Truths and um, try and make a link for you between what you're actually doing here and, and practice in daily life, make that um, as clear as possible. Uh, in the Buddha's life, you see, he uh, begins as an an ordinary person, I mean, he's, he belongs to the ruling caste, the Kshatriya. His father's a local governor, a local king or something, a local potentate of a particular tribe, the Sakyas, just south of Nepal. And uh, he would have been tutored to be a warrior, basically. And uh, in his mid-twenties, he goes through what you might call a identity crisis, <laughs> which manifests as recognizing that um, youth is over and ahead of him is sickness, old age and death. And, uh, myth you know, mythically it's put that he's out riding and he sees these particular people. And each time he asks, what is it? Because he's been guarded from this sort of stuff. And uh, is, does it happen to me? That's a big one. And he also sees an ascetic sitting under a tree, which suggests that maybe there was a way out of this uh, suffering. So then he does what seems to have been uh, a bit like the hippie movement of the 70s, uh, what everybody was doing, uh, which was to abandon the lay life and, and, uh, and wander about as an ascetic. <laughs> and he went to two teachers who both taught him how to... Um, Established these very beautiful states of mind that we call the absorptions or jhana. And each time he's invited to teach uh, with them, but each time he um, refuses because something in him has not been answered. Then he tries the mortification exercises, uh, eating very little, all that sort of stuff. And uh, after about four years of that, that's, the, that's as I've read anyway, they think, I mean, these things are not absolute fact, but that he did practice heavy mortification exercises, we can take for granted. He just found it was more suffering. <laughs> so, it was, so it was just more suffering, and it was unworthy, and waste of time. So in his despair, he left his companions, who thought he'd gone soft, and sitting by the road, this uh, woman comes along with a bit of uh, rice pudding, and sees how this bedraggled, poor ascetic, and instead of offering it to the god that she was supposed to be offering it to, she offers it to him, and it revives him. But something happens, he remembers this, this, this uh, occasion in childhood, where he's watching his father doing a plowing ceremony. And there's something about that memory, there's something about that watching, which awakens in him a possibility of another way of approaching his problem. So the first way of getting into these jhanas was like an escape from life, from real life. I mean the reality of ordinary daily life and just escape into yourself, into these beautiful states. The problem is you have to keep coming out. And the other one was self-mortification was really a, a, the idea that the body was to blame. So the fact that we feel greedy is because the body feels hungry. So if you can, if you can push down all those appetites, then you enter into these uh, rather relaxed beautiful states of mind. Uh, and those of you who've done a, a 
ten-day fast or two-week fast know that after the first two or three days, you do enter into this very easy, happy state, really. And, and the body doesn't need food, mainly because it's eating itself. <laughs> but it's definitely a good way to purify the body. But putting that aside as a practice, um, it's with that, with that childlike investigation, that childlike curiosity, sits under a tree and um, makes the break. He, he, he leaps from being an ordinary person to being this enlightened, fully enlightened person. We say self-enlightened because, you know, after, after trying everything that was on offer, it was his own uh, experience from childhood that brought up this new way of investigating. In fact, probably the only way of investigating as such and that's why we say he's self-enlightened. There, no, there was nobody to show him that path. So he was the one who discovered it and then propagated it. Now, um, once he has become awakened and he spends a couple of days, two or three days, probably more, sort of working out the ramifications of it, the consequence of what he's seen, of what he's experienced, just like we do. We have an experience and then we think, what the heck was that about? See? <laughs> Um, he then goes in search of his... Well, his first idea is, who can I teach? And there's a doubt in his mind when he realises what he's actually achieved, which is so subtle, that he doesn't think anybody will really listen to him. Won't they? Won't he, he's at a loss. And that's put mythically as this god, Sahampati, coming down. The great god, Sahampati. The great Brahma, Sahampati, coming down. Saying that there are a few people just a little dust in their eyes. And that's his reflection, you know, to try. And then he thought of his teachers, but they both died. And so his next protocol was his six companions. And he walks all the way from Bodh Gaya, right the way up to uh, Varanasi, to Sarnath Park, which is about, I don't know how to guess, because I've done it. Like, I remember the distance. It must be a couple hundred miles, a hundred or so miles. And he walks all the way up there to have a chat to these old friends, who at first don't particularly greet him very well, because I think he's gone soft. <laughs> but then <laughs> recognise something's changed. And as he's talking to them, it's very interesting, he says to them, have you ever heard me talk like this before? He's, he's, like they've had chats about the Dharma, they've had you know, hundreds of talks and chats towards each other and met many teachers and they know him. And he asks them after a while, after he's began to explain uh, the path, he says, have you ever heard me speak like this before? And it was after the first couple of talks that um, these ascetics, these, these old companions, also made uh, these insights. Now, the important uh, thing about the Buddha is that he's not only the founder of this particular uh, spiritual tradition, uh, but he's, he, and an exemplar, he's also the archetype. Everybody who follows this path follows the Buddha's path, follows in his footsteps. There has to be a point in our lives when we reflect and think, well, what's all this about? We wouldn't be here. None of us would be here at all if we hadn't woken up one morning and thought, what, <laughs> what am I doing here? <laughs> Who am I? What am I doing here? What's this about? So there's that, there's that questioning about the purpose of life. And, um, and the training is this process of self-investigation. Very simple. The investigation isn't out there. The answer isn't, doesn't lie out there for our internal problems. It lies within us. And that once we begin to practice, it affects the way we are. Now, after he had made this great effort, um, awakened to the, uh, to the truth, the Dharma, as we say, uh, he then goes out. He, he re-engages in life. He re-engages. He doesn't, he doesn't sit there under, his tr under the tree feeling happy for himself, you know, and telling people to get on with it, you know, get on with it. I just want to be left alone, please. <laughs> Leave me alone. Yeah, not available sign, you know. Far from it, he's out there, and for the rest of his life, 45 years, he's tramping up and down. And it's not, it's not so easy. I mean, at the beginning, he seems to gather people around him who are fervent, probably already existing ascetics who've known him for years because he's been around, you know, and uh, who's, who hear about him. Uh, two of the great ones, of course, were his companions, Sariputta and Moggallana, both of whom had been ascetics. They were Brahmins by caste, 
um, been ascetics for quite some time and not satisfied with their teacher had gone wandering and it was Sariputta who met Asaji and uh, who was one of the companions said uh, you know um, he said you look bright and you look you look he says yes he said uh, you know who's your teacher he said yeah what does he teach he's, he teaches for a uh, whatever, whatever, begin, whatever arises. Let me get this right now. Whatever, for whatever arises, there is a cause, and there is a cause for whatever passes away. Something like that. I have to. <laughs> we chant it in the morning. I should know it really. <laughs> it's the first one. Anyway, that aside, uh, Sariputra is, uh, is, you know, his curiosity is, is awakened, and he goes to see the Buddha, and eventually becomes his primary disciple. He's the one who is credited to understand the Dharma second only to the Buddha He's, he was given the title of general of the Dharma his companion Moggallana is the, is the magic guy he's, he's the one who can do all these magical tricks and he becomes the patron saint you might say of the Mahayana tradition uh, just as a little aside uh, Moggallana has a big problem with sloth and torpor and he asks the Buddha what to do and the Buddha gives him 11 things that he can do before he sleeps, right? You've got to <laughs> rub his eyes, rub his, rub his legs, uh, open his eyes, stand up, uh, chant, do all sorts of things. And only after 11 different things, I think it's 11, uh, he, can, he, can, he can say to himself, well, I am tired, I will have a rest. <laughs> now he becomes fully liberated in one week, for heaven's sake. It can't last that long. Sariputta, who didn't ask any questions, had just got the basic uh, grip of the practice, and went off investigating. It took him two weeks. Well, there's something in that, I think. <laughs> it's the, the, the intellectual person is, is often at a disadvantage because he just can't get beyond the thinking mind. So anyway, uh, the Buddha, uh, the reason I tell this story is to show that the Buddha's life is, it's, it's the exemplar and the archetype, and it happens to us in small stages. We go on retreat, uh, we clear some things up, we get little insights about things, but then we've got to go back, we've got to re-engage. And uh, in time, not immediately, in time he formulated these Four Noble Truths. And these Four Noble Truths form the basis of all forms of Buddhism. If a Buddhism doesn't have the Four Noble Truths, it's, not, it's, not, it's simply not Buddhism. Because um, although there are uh, in time doctrinal differences, they tend to be uh, not concerned with the root of the teaching, which is this Four Noble Truths. They tend to be concerned with the nature of consciousness and things like that. So the First Noble Truth is stated very clearly, and it's just the truth of suffering, the truth of Dukkha, the truth of unsatisfactoriness. And this uh, Dukkha is very hard to translate because it includes the joy that we get from pleasures and the happinesses of life. So it's, it's, it's a sort of catch or it's a, it's a word which catches any form of discontent to the most horrific anguish <laughs> and despair uh, possible to humankind uh, dependent on pleasure or direct painful suffering. It's the whole gamut of human misery. <laughs> and um, it's uh, translated in various ways unsatisfactoriness, lack people, somebody translates it as a lack it used to be translated as suffering but that's too, too narrow a word really and uh, he points to three reasons as to where this suffering and how it arises and that's these three characteristics it's the fact that things arise and pass away that makes it impossible for us to hold <coughs> a moment of time you know, to stop the world and say, I'm happy now, don't move. <laughs> it just doesn't work. You can't do it. You know, and even, even when, you, when, when you've had a great party and foolishly people say, well, we must have another one. You know, no. <laughs> a real damp squid, you know. So, and that's what we do. We try to hold on to it. That's what we're doing. We hold on to uh, what gives us pleasure. And that grip, that's the cramp, you see. And as we've um, been discussing throughout the week, it has its consequences, its aftermath. It's like a, you know, it has its diseases that come afterwards. Um, the sense of uh, addiction to something, you know, a compulsiveness about something. Even, even silly things like tea and toast, for heaven's sake, can cause enormous misery. If they're not, 
you know, can't they? Absolutely. And uh, <laughs> and uh, <coughs> the grief at loss, which gets worse and worse and worse the more you're attached to objects and, and especially people. A lot of grief, my heavens. And uh, frustration if you don't get what you want, you know. Especially if a person doesn't do what you want. That's very frustrating. Uh, and, of course, this constant underlying anxiety. And that's, of course, the, the basis, the basic position of the self. See, the self knows it's going to destruct. It knows death's up there somewhere, ahead of it. Therefore, the, underneath it, underneath everything that we are experiencing, there lies this, this, this anxiety, whether we're aware of it or not. And it surfaces when, you know, something horrible happens to us or, or nearly happens to us. So anxiety is, is, is just part and parcel. We talk about this age being the age of anxiety, but that's because, uh, you know, this age does push us to the edge of it. You know, our, I mean, we've become such sophisticated culture, sophisticated civilization that we, we don't know what we'd do if, if the electricity went. You know, it's like, <laughs> I mean, if you, go to, if you go to New Guinea and live with a tribe, they don't have electricity, they live perfectly well, but for us it's like, it's like the end of the world if electricity goes off. And we become soft in that sense, you know. We become dependent entirely upon a, upon a, a standard of living which is um, fragile. See, fragile, really. And that's what we're coming to learn, aren't we? So these emotions, these mental states, uh, uh, all hang around this idea of, of, uh, of pleasure. And the reason we go to pleasure is because, at least at that point, you know, we feel happy. You know, ice cream makes you happy. It's great. <laughs> you know what I mean? Anything that, anything that lifts us out of the, the misery of life is great. And of course, well, why not? You know, you, you go for it. And that would be the, the general culture of a consumer society. It plays on that. It plays on the fact that uh, pleasant things, uh, uh, pleasant experiences make you happy. You know? And at the extreme level, you get these extreme sports where the person puts themselves in a position where they're right there in the moment. You know, you miss the moment, you fall off the cliff or you, your canoe goes under or something. And, and to live at that level of absolute moment-to-moment is, uh, you know, is a real, is, is quite a, um, a breathtaking thing as long as you don't think you are going to die. <laughs> you wouldn't do it otherwise. But of course, that, uh, that's, that's one heck of a way to live, I should Presumably you die of heart attack in your mid-life, <laughs> mid trying to live at that level of intensity. But that's why they do it, because at that intense level, there's a real being alive, being aware. And what we're trying to do is to get to that without extreme sports. We don't have to be, in a, we don't have to be an extreme sport person to, to be absolutely alive in this present moment. And uh, apart from this, 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 this impermanence, um, when, we, when we actually see impermanence, you know, when we begin to grasp impermanence, when it begins to sink into the heart, when it begins to be digested at the level uh, deep within the, the heart, at that attitudinal level, then you know, we begin to see the, Buddha's, the truth of the Buddha's phrase, there is nothing in this world worth holding on to. There's nothing in this world worth holding on to. See, you, keep, you keep repeating that, you keep repeating that until it sort of sinks in, you know. And as it sinks in, there's, um, there's all sorts of things can come, <laughs> can come up because there are so many things we do hold on to. Yeah? Uh, our spouses, our uh, partners, our children, our parents, there's a, there's a whole load of, of, ex, of, of relationships that we have which are, uh, with which we're deeply entwined. And when these people disappear, uh, you know, uh, one way or the other, through death or whatever, it just leaves this sort of gaping wound, doesn't it, in the heart. You're just left there with this gaping wound. And all, what can you do, you see? Now, you know, we make the mistake of thinking that um, this is love, but in fact... It's only because of that self-definition, who, who I am. I am somebody's spouse. I am somebody's spouse. I am, you see. I am this person's mother, father. Those definitions of I am, you see. Have you read um, Khalil Gibran? 
a beautiful Lebanese poet. Yeah. Well, you know, he talks about, um, just in this one case, that children don't belong to you, they come through you, they come by way of you into the world and whatnot, you know. And that's a lovely way to, to sort of see our relationships. So that's what seeing impermanence does. It releases us from the suffering of, of that, that grasping nature we have, which is deep within us because it's to do with me, it's to do with my self-definition. Huh? It's like when uh, on, a, on a, um, a level of, of the body itself we define ourselves by this body we have now. So if, if by accident we lose our sight, it's a catastrophe for us. You know, if you lose a part of your legs... If you have an accident on the road and you become a paraplegic, it's, it's like the world disappears for you. Now, who am I now? You know, it's a, uh, we'd recently, didn't we, that, um, that uh, young, young lad who got injured in the rugby thing and, he, you know, and his parents finally um, you know, took him to Switzerland. Uh, he'd lost his reason for being, completely lost it. And I'm sure everybody tried to give him good reasons, but he just couldn't find it. Because he defined himself as, I am an active sports person and I win, you know, and I, I score tries. <laughs> you know, it's like, and these definitions that we have, they're very, you know, they go very deep. And so when something happens to us which drags that away, which pulls us out from that self-definition, it's, it's, it's a catastrophe. Losing your job. I mean, losing your job is hard enough, it's painful enough in terms of your economic, economic situation and all that. But it's even worse when you've defined yourself as I am. Just, just been listening now to the news of this nurse who leads uh, a panorama program about looking after the elderly, and they filmed it in a hospital. Did anybody see that program? Yeah. Well, anyway, um, she's been struck off the list of nurses uh, on the grounds that uh, she didn't put uh, the privacy of the, of the patients first. But from her point of view, of course, she was. She'd been complaining about the situation. Nobody was listening to her. And so she, um, she went undercover with the panorama team. And you can hear from a voice that she's only just heard, I think, today sometime. She's in this huge state of shock because, like, what's she going to do now, you know? She, she's been kicked out of her own profession. <clears throat> so uh, that sense of... Uh, that sense of impermanence, you see, rebounds back on this sense of self. And that's the other characteristic, you see. The other characteristic is this, is this idea that things are compounded, are whole, entire. But in fact, uh, whatever we investigate in our lives, whether it's uh, what we do, whether it's the body, whether it's the, uh, the mechanisms of the mind, the emotional life and all that, it's all, it's all bits and pieces. It's all compounded bits and pieces which, you know, we do have the capacity to hold it all together into a concept of me. But then we believe that that's what I am, which is very different. I mean, the Buddha didn't go schizophrenic when he became, you know, fully <laughs> liberated and sort of split up into pieces and collapsed into pieces. In fact, if anything, he became very charismatic. So there was coming out of him this entire personage which people met, you know, uh, Obviously very impressive. Um, but he wasn't fooled by that. He didn't think, I am, you know, this guru or something. See? So something about our relationship to the way we are, to how we experience ourselves, is to do with this self. And remember that the Buddha is not saying there is no self. He doesn't go into metaphysics. He just says, look, uh, you know, ask the question, who am I? Who do you think you are? And then look inward and, and see if there's anything there which holds, which sustains, which you can say, oh, well, this is me. See? And that's the, that's the technique of not me, not mine. See? Not me, not mine. And that that I'm looking at is not a self. So, you know, like the pain in my knee definitely feels like me. But when I look at it and distance from it, it's just there is a pain in the knee. And the pain in the knee is not substantial either, because I can go into it and it, it, it dissolves into all sorts of little bits and feelings. Not only that, I haven't a clue what's happening at the chemical level anyway, or, or, the, or the electrical level, the nerve level. There's a whole load of stuff uh, that we, that the self in terms of I seems to take for granted, but when it actually looks into things, it, it, it discovers it actually knows nothing. He knows very little about the body. 
we, we know it as a science. People tell us that, you know, when we breathe, oxygen comes in and, and carbon dioxide goes out. Well, who's experienced that? I don't believe a word of it, frankly. <laughs> I have to prove it to me. Put a sort of plastic bag over my head. and <laughs> If I'm dead in four minutes, they were right. So it's a case of... <laughs> It's a case of, you know, what do we know? You know, what do we really, really know? And uh, all we're left with is our basic experience through the senses. That's what we're left with. And then we have to uh, begin to investigate as to whether this is, this, this, this is actually something real, whether it's not also made up. Now, because of these two positions of I am and the fact that everything I am seems to be changing, it manifests in... Uh, this, the, the, um, this, the characteristic of, of suffering, which is the third one. Um, it's usually rated second, but I'm, I'm, I'm doing it this way. Um, now, in the dependence origination, you see, that suffering comes in as thirst, desire, uh, wanting for uh, this sort of happiness in a wrong way. And what the, what the Buddha points to in the second noble truth is that this is the cause of suffering. So this is the manifest cause of suffering. The underlying cause of suffering is this ignorance, is this delusion about, about who we are and about uh, continuity and all, and all that business. But it manifests as desire. See? And so any time we find ourselves desiring something in that compulsive way, and we know that uh, it's a wrong desire because if it's not satisfied, we feel unhappy for it in one way or the other. As soon as we see desire, we know that this is a manifestation of this essential delusion as to who I am. And it's, you know, it becomes really clear to you. you see? So he's not pointing at some metaphysical thing about not-self. You know, I am not-self. Um, there was... <laughs> My, my old teacher, Rivatadama, used to say he met this fellow in India, this the Indian monk, who was into not-self. I, not, I am not a person, I am not a thing. And he had an elephant. And, uh, <laughs> an elephant. and he didn't like to use the word me or mine. So he would say, he would talk to, <laughs> say to my uh, teacher, he would say, your elephant. See, I said, oh, what's <laughs> my elephant? He says, says your, he'd, he'd always put everything in the, yours or his, he wouldn't use me or mine. It's sort of real crazy stuff actually <laughs> it's very strange things so uh, this second noble truth of desire the cause of suffering the cause of suffering makes it very simple for us actually because every time we can feel a lack every time we can feel a yearning you know which comes up in all sorts of ways it's not just yearning for food and money loneliness um, uh, a sense of yearning, nostalgia. There's a whole range of these sort of, you know, desires that come up into the mind. And if we're sharp enough, if we stay at this level of awareness, we can we can see it. We can see it, and we can name it. That's the point of. That's one of the better points of noting. You you you're straight on it. You say, oh, that's that's wrong desire. And. You see, that, that noting, that, um, that labelling of it, that actual recognition of it, does allow us a moment of reflection. We might not. We might just say, to hell with it. I'll, <laughs> I'll have that piece of toast anyway. But it does allow us a moment of reflection. And then we realise this importance of intention. And we've got a choice. That's the point of choice. We can call it a choice because there are two roads open to us. We can either indulge it and keep going down the road towards suffering or we can let go of it and, and move towards the road of liberation. But in a more uh, realistic sense, once we know where the path is, there isn't a choice. You know, I mean, really, we ought to do that which is <laughs> going to lead us out of suffering and, uh, and, 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 and to, to sort of build up the, uh, the commitment to that particular path. So that's his second noble truth. Now the third one, you see, is, is, is a very clear, direct statement. There is an end to suffering. He doesn't, he doesn't use the word Nibbana. See, his whole, his whole teaching is about suffering and the end of suffering. I'm using suffering now with that huge sort of gamut of understanding. 
um, when, he's, when, when he reduces this up, he says, all I teach is dukkha and, the, and dukkha nirodha. In, in the Pali, it's three words. He reduces his whole teaching to three words. Dukkha, dukkha nirodha. Suffering, unsatisfactoriness, discontent, and the end of that. So the third noble truth is not phrased, there is this mythical place called Nibbana, you know, this Shangri-La, which you can head towards, you know, east, east of Birmingham. <laughs> no, west. Sorry, west. We're here. <laughs> so, no, it's not that at all. He says, he says there is an end to suffering. That's a, just a great, straightforward, you know, statement, and that's it. And one of the uh, one of the words that he uses in the definition in the in the sort of approach to this is nibida, which is weariness. Um, weariness. That's not that's not being fed up. That's not being bored. Weariness it comes to you when, in a sense, you've had enough. Um, very old people sometimes just die just because they just had enough you know they just let go they've had enough um, one example I like to use is is when little children so you know you've got a, a four or five year old and they want to play want to play tiddlywinks or snakes and ladders you know and you say oh yeah come on let's play you know so you have a great one game and then they say oh let's have another one you see and you say well just a minute I've got <laughs> like, like enough you know <laughs> I can play snakes and ladders once with a kid and that's about it <laughs> so it's that sort of weariness one, one wearies of things um, and that's a good sign that's a spiritual sign that's a spiritual indicator to the person it's not that they are losing their uh, desire to live or anything like that it's just that that way of life no longer attracts and if we think about the stages of sainthood uh, um, there are four paths and fruits. There are four levels. The third level is known as non-returner. Now, uh, you can think of that in, in this sort of um, traditional Buddhist way of that they don't come, they, you know, when they die, they don't come back to this realm. But in terms of the spiritual life, what, what it's saying is there is nothing in this world which attracts them anymore. They're living in this world where attachment is not possible to the sensual life because they've become weary of it they've gone beyond seeking that sort of happiness which doesn't mean they don't eat and drink and, and do all the other things it's just that they're no longer attached to it as a form of happiness when they say of, a, of, a, of somebody who's achieved the end there's a lovely phrase of they, they've laid down the burden I really like that phrase <laughs> <laughs> they have laid down the burden and then <clears throat> of course he lays out the path and this four thing these, the, the way he laid it out by the way was the way that doctors in those times uh, worked with diseases the disease was mentioned was, was spoke what, what the disease was um, what was the cause of the disease what was the prognosis and what was the medicine to be used for the end of the disease so he very much sees himself as a doctor of the mind, you know, as, a, as, a, as a psychotherapist or as um, a psychiatrist or something. And he sees himself in that role because he's about, he's about suffering. Yeah? And then we've got these, the Eightfold Path, the Eightfold Path, which he, which he delineates. And it starts off with this right understanding. And this right understanding is exactly what we've been talking about. It's beginning to understand... Uh, the three characteristics mainly that's what it's about and included in that three characteristics remember is this whole business of suffering the cause of the desire being the cause and therein lies all that teaching about the dependent origination that we chant in the morning and um, maybe there'll be time to uh, look into that tomorrow so this right understanding um, uh, begins with first of all what you hear and then what you think for yourself and then what you yourself experience through the teaching so it becomes a deeper deeper a deeper experience a deeper uh, understanding and knowledge until it becomes your own personal experience and that's when that's when it has obviously a, a greater effect but if it stays only at that sort of level of understanding and and thinking you see 
it never really drops, it never really moves into the attitudinal base, which is where your, where your will lies. And the will expresses itself through the heart, you see. And how does that attitudinal base express itself? It's, al- they always give, it's always the three same examples. It's always from selfishness to generosity. So once you lose the self, the s- you're not always feeding into the self. The self, remember, is this selfishness is not to be confused with self-care. And one has to eat, you know. But whether it has to be beef stroganoff every night is another, <laughs> another matter, you know. Or, or a cheesecake. Yes, cheesecake. So, <laughs> so it's a case of recognizing that there's a, a shift in our attitude. And that's another telltale to the meditator that they're moving spiritually because their attitudes change. The way they're actually behaving changes. There's um, a lovely scene be, of, uh, in, the, in the scriptures of three fully enlightened monks uh, living together. And they're known as the Anarudas. They have three separate names, but the Buddha approached them as the Anarudas because that was the name of the chief monk. And he asks them, how, how do you live so peacefully together? And the reply is, well, I say to myself, what if I put aside what I want to do and do what the others want to do? Have you ever tried that? What if, <laughs> what if I put aside what I want to do and do what the others want to do? Now, frankly, that only works if the others are saying the same thing. But else <laughs> you, tend, you can tend to be abused. <laughs> so you have to bring a bit of noose to this practice, you know. But they live peacefully by being open to what the other person wanted to do. And then obviously there was some discussion. And this other lovely thing that he says, he says they go off an arms round. Whoever comes back first sets up the table. So it's not, you know, well, you said you were going to do it and I, you know, I was waiting for you. And <laughs> you know, it's like there was a cup that needs to be washed. And everybody's waiting for somebody else to do it. (laughs) So it's a case of they came back and and it had the table and and the preparation for the meal. And then whoever was last cleaned up, you know. Obviously, if you didn't want to be last, you had to be quicker. (laughs) So this... um, this uh, expresses itself through this lack of selfishness and a movement towards generosity. And remember that generosity demands you lose something that you are, you're treasuring, you know, that you had thought you would use for yourself. You're giving away some time, some, some time of your life for the benefit of somebody else. Hmm? Or you're giving away some wealth which you've spent time earning, which you had demarked for this special treat. And you're giving it away for somebody else. So that's, there's a, even through the act of generosity, there's a loss of self. Every time we do it with, 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 with a proper, clean, um, full-hearted purpose for the benefit of the other, we're undermining the self. Okay? We're undermining the self. And that the most dramatic of that is, of course, when somebody gives their life away for another. I, uh, I went to Auschwitz uh, a couple of years uh, last, last year last year and um, oh, just amazing really but uh, in, in the context that we're speaking of there's a particular Catholic priest Father Maximilian and uh, the, um, uh, the SS there decided to shoot uh, decided to starve to death 10 men because of some partisan activity and one of them was crying you know he had a wife and, and children and all this sort of stuff so Maximilian stood forth and, and said he'd take his place and they allowed him to do that and they just shut them up in this room until they died of starvation. So that's the greatest of all. No greater gift as man. It's Jesus, isn't it? No greater gift as man than to give his life another. So that's how far generosity can go. And I mean, to do that, you've really got, you really mustn't think of yourself. <laughs> Something has to go. And the other one is to move away from hatred towards love. You see, towards aversion towards love. And that manifests our relationships to each other. And the, th- the third one is away from cruelty towards compassion, you know. And we're not, we're not uh, particularly talking about torturing people, but just, you know, getting our own back, a nasty word, a cutting remark, all those little ways that we diminish <laughs> other people. All that disappears and towards, towards compassion. 
So these are your three big ones, but actually you can take any um, any uh, negative uh, attitude and the meditation will move you towards the opposite. So for instance, loneliness. So loneliness is, you know, uh, a feeling that, you know, you, uh, you're not loved, you're not wanted, you're abandoned, all that sort of stuff. And it can become very self-piteous and all that. But if you sit with it, you see, if you sit with the feeling of loneliness, if you sit with that feeling of, of, of um, being unloved and all that sort of stuff, you know, poor little me, and if you sit with it, when it dies away, the gift comes, you see. Whenever you let go of these things, there always comes up with a gift. Hmm? But you don't know what the gift is until you let go. It's not like, not like you've got an old TV and you think, well, I'll kick this out because you know which one you're going to get, the new plasma. It's, just <laughs> it's, not, it's not quite like that because you don't quite know what you're going to get. You have to give something up first. So there you are bearing with this sense of loneliness, you know, which can, for some people, is, of course, a very deep, uh, profound feeling, um, driving them towards despair. And to just sit with it. And when it begins to disappear, you see, what arises? What arises? Solitude. And solitude is to be perfectly happy just by just on one's own. We experience it in little blips and blobs when you've had too much of people. And you've got to be on your own for a little while. But that's that's a poor solitude. <laughs> to get that solitude you've got to have lots of people around you annoying you. <laughs> and an escape route. <laughs> but real solitude is when when you've discovered, you have engendered, you've found the love for yourself. You don't need anybody else to love you, for heaven's sake. You're all right on your own, thanks very much. And that's the and that's the and that's the uh, the purpose of sometimes being on your own and, and bearing with that with those sorts of feelings. So, the this process of uh, understanding, changing our emotional attitudinal base, you see, uh, comes through the practice. But it it doesn't just come through sitting here. Or th the sitting can make you sit with that loneliness, you see. And it can help, and it can help begin to, uh, and, and allow it to dissipate. It can sit with the aversion and allow it to dissipate. Uh, but then you get these next three active qualities. You see, right speech, right action, and right livelihood. So here, the Buddha is saying is that you've got to completely re-engage. Now, in the meditation, we found this place within ourselves, a sort of observation post. Um, which is uh, a sort of a strange place to be because we've found a place within ourselves to look at ourselves, to look at this, this psychology. Now you can't, you can't hold that position if you, if you, excuse me, if you engage. You see, there's, it's a sort of split cut. You, you're looking at yourself doing something. Now it might work for simple um, physical activities, you know, like when you're doing the garden or something. You can become aware of yourself. You see. But even there, it's not quite right. It's not, that's not what we're trying to do when we're washing the pots or doing little jobs around here or in our life. We're not trying to be aware of ourselves doing something. We're trying to actually lose that. We're trying to give ourselves entirely to what we're doing. And before you do that, you have to make sure that you're entering into that experience which is going to be conditioning eh, in, with the right attitude. So... Before we go to work in the morning, you see, uh, you'll be getting this on my email, <laughs> on my monthly tip of the, tip of the month. Uh, before you go to work, there has to be a moment when you have to just reflect on what it is, you know, you're going to offer in terms of probably the best time of your life, the best energy of your life goes into work of some sort, doesn't it? It's the work society demands the 40, the 30 to 40, 60 best hours of your life. <laughs> you know, you, you get the weekend off. So, so you may as well make you may as well make hay of it. I mean, you may as well make something of it instead of going in there like a real old grump. And what you do is you you sit there and you say to yourself, now you know, what is my attitude? I, what attitude do I want to engender? You know, for this work, and it's this, and it's really finding that right attitude which turns the work into a spiritual exercise. One of the uh, examples I use is when I was, uh, uh, you know, at school. Uh, <clears throat> we went off to work in in the old um, 
Well, then there were still cotton mills, believe it or not. But there was one place I got to work, which was a cake factory. And, uh, well, a confectionery and all that sort of stuff. And they had this conveyor belt. And these little cakes came along, you see. And um, quite speedy. And it was lined by all, <laughs> by all these women, see. And they stuck me at the end. They stuck me in, in this line. And uh, my job was to put the cherry on top of this cake. <laughs> <laughs> Well, they did move very fast, you know. <laughs> and these women, of course, who, who, you know, their hands were flaying all over the place, were having a great chat of the day. You know, they were talking about this and talking about that, and I was going, whoa, you know, where's the next <laughs> And once in a twice, they, they used to have to stop the machine, you know, and, and the, 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 the foreman got <laughs> absolutely sick of me and kicked me off. So, I mean, <laughs> now... For me, coming out of school and, you know, all that study business, it was actually quite a relief. It was lovely. You know, like you would, didn't have to think for a moment. You just, you just did this very easy job. And unlike school, you came out with his money. You know, his money at the end of the week. Uh, but, of course, after a few days, uh, you know, I had jobs like that. They got really, really, really boring because you were doing the same thing all the time. And uh, now, of course, if I, if I ended up in a job like that, you see... Um, I would see it very differently. This, you know, I would say, well, this is a great opportunity to develop concentration. Moment to moment concentration. What more do you want? You know, get the machine to go faster. So I can really, so I can really just be with there. You know, you keep my mind absolutely on that cherry. Don't move off it. So <coughs> it, doesn't matter, it doesn't matter actually, when you think about it, it doesn't matter what you do or what you have to end up doing in your life in terms of your work. Even the most uh, so-called menial task becomes meaningful, depending on your uh, attitude to it. There were some years ago, I don't know whether they still exist, but there were some Christian, uh, some Catholic, uh, I don't know whether they were, I think they were monks of some sort, friars of some sort, who began to do the menial tasks around the city as part of their practice. See? And they, I mean... From a spiritual point of view, there's no menial task. If, you, if, you're, if you're in a monastery, you know, somebody has to clean the toilet, somebody has to sweep the streets, uh, the, 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 the paving. And in fact, every morning in some monasteries that I were in, everybody get out there. Yeah, but everybody, we swept leaves every morning. Every morning and every afternoon, you know, because the leaves are always falling. And there was this lar- large park area with these trees. And the reason for that was because it gave you a lovely shade to do your walking meditation. And every morning we start at one end and go to the other end. And after lunch, one end, and we went to the other end, sweeping away. Just the same old, <laughs> you know. And, um, you know, you had, to say, you had to make sure that your attitude was right. If your attitude was wrong, it was absolutely boring, it was terrible, miserable. You know, I didn't come here to sweep. I came here to become enlightened and liberated. I came here to study the Dharma. What the hell was I sweeping for? So it's the same with, with uh, uh, anything you do. So um, the importance of this teaching is that the Buddha is not separating out the meditation from daily life. He's saying it's right in there. You've got to go right in there. And somehow you have to give yourself, no matter how uh, unwanted, how, how much the job that you're doing is in your, you feel is unwanted, it's not me. The point is that this is it. This is the way it is. I mean, that's a lovely phrase that you'll see in a lot of Buddhist, Buddhist writings. This is the way it is. Right? Stop, stop trying to think that this is the way it should be or you want it to be. This is the way it is. And it's when we accept a situation as it is that the potential arises. So long as we're fighting the situation as it should be, then you don't get anywhere with that. And that's not to be confused with resignation. You know, like, this is the way it is. You know, what the hell? <laughs> it's not at all. It's, it's a case of a very positive uh, seeing that, well, this is the way it is, and, and let's, let's make something of it. So uh, the, the, um, the connection between the meditation and daily life uh, lies in the fact that meditation is a time, early morning, when we uh, set ourselves in the right you know, mode for the day. And that's what we're doing. We sit, you know, we're recognizing that there's a level of consciousness, which, by which I mean a way of relating to the world, yeah? 
a way of relating to the world which we can establish in the morning by first of all establishing it to ourselves, within ourselves, whatever mood or state we find ourselves in. And then to engage, you see, so that when you're eating breakfast, you know, like the old Zen, when you're eating, you're just eating, see? That's it, you're not trying to observe, you're just eating, you see? And when you meet people, uh, before you go to work, you put the right attitude into your heart and, and you, you run with that attitude. That doesn't mean to say that during the day it doesn't drop or fall off or you wonder where it's gone, where you've, where you've hidden it. <laughs> but, but every time you wake up and you realize how miserable you are, you say, hold on, stop, you know, something's gone wrong here. And the, uh, the last three of the Eightfold Paths are this right effort, uh, right uh, mindfulness and right concentration, right uh, focus, you might say. So uh, this Eightfold Path, you see, it's all one practice. And if there's a hair's breadth of difference between the sitting posture and brushing your teeth and doing the job of work, if there's any point where in the day you think, well, this isn't spiritual practice, then there's something wrong. You haven't clicked. We haven't made the connection. It's all spiritual practice. From the moment you wake to the moment you sleep, it has something to do with establishing a right relationship which will, going back to our noble truths, eventually undermine the amount of discontent we feel. And that way we're slowly moving towards a relationship with the world which is no longer causing us any problems. See, the Buddha says the world argues with me. I don't argue with the world. Let the world argue with us. Why should we argue with the world? <laughs> just, just get on with it. So that's the, um, that's the basic platform of all Buddhist teaching. doesn't matter what strain of Buddhism you go to, you'll find those Four Noble Truths. And I think you, uh, the more you investigate them, the more you um, contemplate them, you see they are rooted in action. They're not rooted in philosophy. They're not rooted in some highfalutin theology or anything like that. They're rooted in an actuality of how to engage in life which is uh, you know, going to make us uh, content. And I think that's really the, that's really the place we, we, uh, we're moving towards, this contentment. That's a, a real sign of spiritual development when you find somebody who is content, happy with the way things are, whether they are not so good or wonderful. They're just a state of contentment. I hope my words have been of some assistance. May you be liberated from all your suffering sooner rather than later. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.